Loud, O Zion, your salvation. Laud with hymns of exultation, Christ your King and Shepherd true. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. Glad to have you with us. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And the confusion stops here. Uh, a quick word of apology for those of you watching on YouTube. I'm having some camera issues, so uh, there's no image of me today, although that's probably all right since I feel like I really do have a face for radio, but I'll be back live with you with an image next week. And uh, in fact, next week on Wednesday, I intend to return to the studio from this point forward as things loosen up here in our uh, coronavirus situation. In the meantime, I'm going to talk about uh, last Catholic or last Sunday, Catholics here in Southern California and uh, elsewhere around the country Many of them had their first opportunity to assist at Holy Mass after weeks and months of not being able to go to Mass or to receive communion. And last Sunday seemed like a particularly uh, appropriate liturgy for this restoration, as it was the Feast of Corpus Christi, the Body of Christ. So I think it's a perfect time to remind Catholics about the Church's teaching on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and our responsibility to discern the body and blood of Christ and examine ourselves to be sure that we only receive when we believe ourselves to be in a state of grace, only when we are well disposed and not out of routine or uh, some desire for human respect. So we're going to be talking about the Holy Eucharist and the Feast of Corpus Christi, especially one particular aspect of this very uh, special liturgy. Also, later we'll have a Catholic Kryptonite segment on on defending the doctrine of the real presence from objections from our separated brethren. And then we'll also take a look at the precepts of the church and what they mean for you today. But first, I'd like to start with a little history about the Feast of Corpus Christi, where it came from and what it's all about. Well, the feast was instituted by Pope Urban IV in the year of our Lord, 1264, so all the way back in the 13th century. But the inspiration for the feast actually came through a, a humble lay woman, a devout nun of Liege. And she claimed that our Lord himself appeared to her and encouraged that she would uh, um, ha have instituted such a, a feast. And so she spoke to her priest, who then became a bishop, and, uh, you know, uh, that heaven really wanted this feast to happen. Now, naturally, the church already celebrates the institution of the Eucharist each year on Maundy Thursday, which is the anniversary of the Last Supper, right? It's part of the Easter Triduum. But this new feast was to have a different emphasis. And this inspiration came to this nun at a time not unlike our own, when there was confusion about the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist among the faithful, even doubt among uh, some of the clergy. So the feast was first celebrated locally, and in the year 1247, uh, Robert, the Bishop of Liege, determined to make it a diocesan celebration, but unfortunately was prevented by his untimely death. However, a friend of his became Pope Urban IV, who commanded that the feast be celebrated throughout the entire church. And this was confirmed by his successor, Pope Clement V, at the Council of Vienne in the year 1311, which fixed the date for the Feast of Corpus Christi 
as the Thursday following Trinity Sunday. And for a long time, once upon a time, Corpus Christi was a holy day of obligation. And it was traditional for there to be Eucharistic processions on Corpus Christi. Now, it's since been moved to Sunday. <clears throat> but, you know, last year, our parish here in Southern California held a Eucharistic procession in honor of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament on Corpus Christi. And hopefully next year, things will be back to normal enough that we can do so again. But, uh, but what is the purpose? What was the purpose for the Feast of Corpus Christi? Why was it instituted? And, and why are, were processions so solemnly held on that day? Well, there's actually a number of reasons. And like I say, it's distinct from the celebration of the anniversary of the institution of the Eucharist that we have on Holy Thursday. The, the, uh, the purpose of the Feast of Corpus Christi, number one, was, was to declare openly and publicly to the faithful and to the world, the church's belief in the real and substantial presence of Jesus and the Holy Sacrament to the altar. That's number one. It's a witness. Number two, it was instituted in order to demonstrate that in the sight of heaven and earth, the honor and the adoration that we owe, uh, as the scripture says, to him before whom every knee shall bow. Number three is to give public thanks for the institution of the Holy Sacrament, and to give thanks for all the graces that have been conferred upon the faithful. And I think this, this is especially needful in our own time, when so many Catholics and so many communities of non-Catholics do not understand that the graces won by Christ on the Holy Cross are communicated to the world precisely through the sacraments of his church. Uh, the fourth reason for the institution of the feasts of Corpus Christi is um, so that through our, our solemn adoration, we can help to make up for, in some degree, the wrongs that are done to Christ in the sacrament. So, so it's a matter of reparation, especially for sacrilegious communions. Uh, number five is uh, to bring down God's blessing upon our country and upon uh, the people of the, the church, the whole world, the faithful. And number six, to show that Jesus, as true God, is not only present, you know, in church, there in the tabernacle, in, in temples built by hands, as the Bible would have it, but that he has heaven for his throne and the earth for his footstool, and that he has the heart and soul of all the faithful around the world who receive him worthily in holy communion for his temple. Now, when the Pope instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi back in the 13th century, uh, obviously, he needed to have a mass and an office composed for its celebration. And so the church called upon the two greatest living theologians at the time, or, for, or any time for that matter, namely the great Franciscan doctor of the church, St. Bonaventure, and the universal doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas. And did you know that once upon a time, St. Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas were both professors at the Unity, uh, University of Paris at the same time? Can you imagine what it would be like for a student in those days? Right? Hey, man, what's your day like? Oh, dude, I got Bonaventure this morning and Aquinas this afternoon. <laughs> Incredible. I can imagine students today with their heads exploding. But in any event, both of these great doctors were called upon to compose a mass and, and an office for the feast. And according to legend, when Bonaventure heard Aquinas' mass for the Feast of Corpus Christi, he simply tore up his own composition. 
And the particular reason was the sequence that St. Thomas composed for the feast called Lauda Zion. Now, a sequence is like a hymn, and there were thousands of sequences composed during the Middle Ages. But the, the Lauda Zion is one of only five that are still used in liturgy today. And it is at once a comprehensive presentation, which is doctrine on the, on the Holy Eucharist. But at the same time, it is the most beautiful hymn. I mean, it, it is. Uh, an inspired example of how more can be communicated by a few words in the language of poetry than in the most comprehensive prose. The, the Lauda Zion speaks directly to the heart. So I want to share with you what made a great saint and doctor like St. Bonaventure tear up his own work, you know, the more so because if you assisted last Sunday at the ordinary form of the Mass, you probably didn't hear the Lauda Zion or at least not in its entirety. And if that's the case, we're going to remedy that right now. And on the way, we'll also look at some of the differences between the, the traditional Mass of Corpus Christi and the revision made after Vatican II. But before we begin, I'd just like to say that I'm going to be reading from the English translation of the Novus Ordo Missal. And thanks to the correction of the translation introduced in 2010 under Pope Benedict XVI of Holy Memory, uh, although I shouldn't speak of them as though he's gone. He's just gone from the office. But the point is that this new translation in English manages to retain much of the beauty of the Latin original. And the very first stanzas are <clears throat> by way of an introduction. Pardon me. <clears throat> so the first line, Loud, O Zion, your salvation, loud with hymns of exultation, Christ your King and Shepherd true. For Aquinas, Zion is the church, the new Israel. And laud means praise. So this little introduction begins with a call to praise Christ, our heavenly king and good shepherd. Bring him all the praise you know. He is more than you bestow. Never can you reach his due. So we should praise Christ with all our strength and with all our hearts because he gives us far more than we can ever return. You know, therefore, it's impossible to give Jesus too much praise because it's impossible even to praise him enough. Special theme for glad thanksgiving is the quickening and the living bread today before you set. So Eucharist means thanksgiving. And the special theme for this Eucharist, that is for this Holy Mass, is the real presence in the Eucharist, meaning the Blessed Sacrament. Right? So Eucharist is Mass and then Eucharist is Sacrament. And the special theme for this Mass is the quickening and the living bread. Quickening means the giving of life, particularly the life of the Spirit, the eternal life, which Jesus, the living bread, promised to all who would eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that is just the introduction. <laughs> Next, we're going to turn to the institution of the sacrament and then the benefits from that which we derive from it and, and so on. It's really incredible. And I hope that uh, you're going to be able to uh, stick with us. We're about to uh, go to our first break. But before we do, I wanted to um, mention that we got some events coming up this Saturday, June the 20th. We're going to have our virtual pilgrimage with Steve Ray live on YouTube. And it's it's uh, the live conference is going to be free on YouTube. For But if you want to donate $25, you can get access to all the audio and video recordings, uh, you know, to have at your disposal. So thanks for your support. We'll be right back with lots more. 
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. Healthcare news today seems to be coming from everywhere and everyone. It's confusing, at least, and untrustworthy at the worst. Dr. Asetta is a faithful Catholic in the Kern County community. He is trustworthy, well-researched, and will only give expert opinion on matters in his own specialty. Catholic teaching at its entirety is of utmost importance to Dr. Asetta. Give Dr. Asetta a call for your obstetrics and gynecological needs at 661-695-6617. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for keep it simple Catholicism. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, talking on the truth about the Eucharist and referring to the sequence Lauda Zion, composed by St. Thomas Aquinas for the Feast of Corpus Christi. Now, we just went through the introduction, and Aquinas turns now to the institution of the sacrament. From his hands of old partaken, as we know by faith unshaken, where the twelve at supper met. So now we're going to recall that the first Holy Eucharist was celebrated by Jesus. Jesus himself, and that the apostles were the very first to receive from his own holy and venerable hands his body and blood in holy communion. He continues, Full and clear ring out your chanting. Joy nor sweetest grace be wanting. From your heart let praises burst. For today the feast is holden when the institution olden of that supper was rehearsed. I mentioned before that Corpus Christi was originally celebrated on the Thursday after Trinity Sunday because it is a special memorial of the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper on Holy Thursday. But unlike Maundy Thursday, where the emphasis is on the passion, the emphasis of this new feast is on the many benefits that we derive from the Blessed Sacrament. St. Thomas goes on, 
Hear the new law's new oblation by the new king's revelation and the form of ancient rite. You know, as St. Paul says, uh, you know, he talks about the new law. Remember that Moses brought the law down from Sinai. But as St. Paul says in the book of Hebrews, one greater than Moses is here. And so from, uh, from the Last Supper onwards, the followers of Christ will no longer celebrate the Passover it's instituted by Moses. They're no longer going to offer the blood of sheep and bullocks at the temple, but will worship God in spirit and in truth by celebrating the Holy Mass, which makes present the once-for-all sacrifice of the true Lamb of God. He goes on, Now the new, the old effaces. Truth away the shadow chases. Light dispels the gloom of night. Now this refers to the fact that the sacrifices of the old law were only types and figures. They were a foreshadowing of what would be fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and um, its celebration in the Holy Mass. For while the old sacrifices were, were pleasing to God, so long as they were done with a contrite heart and so on, they could not restore the relationship with him that was broken by the sins of man. Only the sacrifice of Christ, the light of the world, was able to redeem mankind and make it possible for us to leave the darkness of the state of sin and enter into the light of the state of grace. What he did at supper seated, Christ ordained to be repeated, his memorial ne'er to cease. And now we're getting into the nuts and bolts of the institution. And this, by the way, is the fulfillment of the prophecy of uh, Malachi in the Old Testament. From the rising of the sun, even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles. And in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. For my name name is great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord of hosts. A clean oblation is like the, um, like the sacrifice of Melchizedek of bread and wine. A clean oblation means an unbloody sacrifice. And, and so how, do, how is that you know, prophetic of the Holy Mass? Well, our Lord's once-for-all sacrifice on Calvary means that there's no more need for bloody animal sacrifices because that's all been fulfilled in that one sacrifice, once and for all, as our our separated brethren are always so adamant about pointing out. But that one true sacrifice of Christ, that sacrifice that he himself made sacramentally present at the Last Supper as a clean oblation, will continue to be made present in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which he commanded to be celebrated until the end of time. So even during the coronavirus hysteria, when, when churches are closed all over the world, and the faithful were dispensed from their Sunday obligation, the Mass continued with priests acting in the person of Christ, um, you know, fulfilling what he ordained that this memorial would never cease, raising the host and chalice around the world and around the clock, just as Christ ordained. Now, Thomas continues, and his rule for guidance taking, bread and wine we hallow, making thus our sacrifice of peace peace between God and man. And what's he saying? It's like we're following Jesus. And so simply put at the consecration, the priest does what Jesus did. 
and fulfills his command to do this as a commemoration of me. And so that's the institution. Now St. Thomas turns from that to the transubstantiation, this most crucial doctrine. This, the truth each Christian learns. Bread into his flesh he turns, to his precious blood, the wine. Now here is, in a nutshell, the doctrine of transubstantiation, that the substance of the bread and wine truly become the body and blood of Christ. This is the great truth that Aquinas says every Christian learns. Unfortunately, uh, due to various circumstances, decades of poor catechesis, and in my opinion, uh, due in no small measure to the arrangement of the new order of the Mass, this truth is not accepted. It is not believed by far too many Christians, even Catholic ones. But for those who do accept the reality of the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist, Aquinas says, sight has failed, nor thought conceives, but to, but a dauntless faith believes, resting on a power divine. Catholics believe in the doctrine of the real presence, that Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is substantially present in the Eucharist under the appearance of bread and wine. Now, we can't fully understand this because it's above human reason. It is a supernatural mystery. Yet, we believe. And why? Because we take Jesus at his word. And we take Jesus at his word because he's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. His word is the word of God. In fact, in a special way, as St. John tells us, he himself is the word of God. When Jesus proclaimed to his followers, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Many of his disciples stopped following him because they could not understand. They couldn't wrap their brain around it. Then Jesus says to the twelve, Do you also want to leave? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so here St. Peter shows us one of the, the most important ways, one of the most important uh, aspects of following Christ, that we take Jesus at his word, because it is the word of God. Our belief in him rests on his identity, on his divine power. Simon Peter didn't understand what Jesus was on about when he said, you have to drink my flesh and drink my blood. All he knows is you have the words of eternal life. So if you said it, then it's true. Jesus himself said, all power in heaven and earth is given me, and I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those who turned away and rejected him that day, you know, everyone but the apostles, missed out on an important uh, truth to be revealed later. And that was, of course, at the Last Supper, that, that Jesus made that sacrifice, his bloody sacrifice of Calvary that he would undergo on Good Friday, he made it present for them sacramentally under the appearance of bread and wine. And they partake, truly partake of his uh, body and blood sacramentally, substantially, but in an unbloody manner. See, and, and this is true of all, all the truths. We believe in all the truths that the Holy Catholic Church teaches and believes because God has revealed them. God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. Amen. 
Okay, back to St. Thomas. Here beneath these signs are hidden priceless things to sense forbidden. Signs, not things, are all we see. So again, Thomas points out that while the substance of the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, the accidents remain. To our senses, the Eucharist looks and smells and feels like bread and wine. But by faith, we know that the substance has really changed into his body and blood. Now, I remember a story that a priest told about a, a, a boy who was the son of a scientist, and, and he was in Catholic school in the second grade, preparing for First Holy Communion, and uh, sister sent him to father because he didn't believe that the um, bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus, substantial. And he said, priest asked him, why not? And he said, well, my dad's a scientist. And, you know, if you take the, the host and the chalice, if you take the, that host and put it under a microscope, it's going to look like bread and taste like bread and, and smell like bread and feel like bread. And he says, and if it looks, tastes, smells, and feels like bread, then it's bread. And you'll see molecules of bread. And so the priest, being a clever fellow, said, oh, your dad's a scientist. And he says, yes. And he said, well, um, let me ask you this then. What if you took the bread and wine and exposed it to radioactivity, right? Deadly radiation. He said, would you eat it? And he says, well, of course not. It would be deadly, it would be poisonous, radioactive. And he says, yes, but you'd be able, all you'd be able to see or taste or feel or smell is bread. But you know that even though you can't see it or smell it or taste it or feel it, that you would be consuming deadly radiation under the appearance of bread. And the, the penny clicked for him, you know, the penny dropped. And of course, that's an analogy and analogies limps because we're talking about the substance changing. But the point is that the accidents remain. Priceless things, the body and blood of Christ, to sense forbidden, signs, not things are all we see. So by faith we know, even though it doesn't appear so to our senses, by faith we know the substance really has changed into his body and blood. St. Thomas goes on, blood is poured and flesh is broken, yet in either wondrous token Christ entire we know to be. Whoso of this food partakes does not rend the Lord nor breaks. Christ is whole to all, all that taste. And so here Aquinas presents the profound truth that Christ is present, whole and entire, body, blood, soul, and divinity, even in the smallest particle of the host or a single drop from the chalice. Thousands are as one receivers, one as thousands of believers, each of him who cannot waste. Thomas tells us we're all one body, united in holy communion. Thousands is one, one is thousands. United in communion with Christ who is eternal. He, he, him who cannot waste, he goes on forever. And this is a beautiful and consoling truth. And it's one that Aquinas places here because he's about to drop a bomb. He's going to share another important, but I fear these days, too often neglected truth. Bad and good, the feast are sharing. Of what diverse dooms preparing? Endless death or endless life? Life to these, to those damnation. See how like participation is with unlike issues rife. Okay. Let's see. 
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And I must say, first I have to apologize, um, missed hearing the uh, music there at that last break, so I kind of cut off what St. Thomas was saying. And uh, going to remind everybody that um, good news, starting next Wednesday, I will be back in studio, uh, you know, as the coronavirus opening developments continue. So I will be able to be back in the studio and uh, looking very much forward to that. Hopefully there will be fewer of those little technical faux pas once I'm back ensconced behind the uh, the Virgin Most Powerful radio microphone. But uh, before the break, we we're talking about that part of the Laudus Zion, where Thomas Aquinas tells us that we're all one body united in Holy Communion with Christ, who is eternal. And I said that's a beautiful and consoling truth, and that I believe it's placed there precisely because um, St. Thomas is going to drop the bomb on a too often neglected truth. And I'll, I'll uh, read the verse again. He says, bad and good, the feast are sharing. Of what diverse dooms preparing, endless death or endless life? Life to these, to those damnation. See how like participation is with unlike issues rife. Wow, this is heavy. What's he on about? Jesus said, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. However, we also read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, or as St. Thomas would have it, damnation. And how can this be? Well, remember the parable of the weeds and the wheat. God allows the good and the bad to remain in his church. And he likens it to the farmer who does not uproot the weeds to avoid uprooting the wheat as well. However, at the harvest, he cuts them all down together and then separates the weeds and the wheat. And likewise, our Lord will separate the sheep and the goats and the weeds and the wheat on the last day when the wheat is gathered into barns, but the weeds are bundled together to be burned. Right? This is a, this is a, a scathing indictment, a warning against receiving communion in a state of mortal sin, receiving unworthily. Now he continues uh, with a sequence. When the sacrament is broken, doubt not, but believe it is spoken that each severed outward token doth the very whole contain. Not the precious gift divides, breaking but the sign betides. Jesus still the same abides, still unbroken doth remain. We're in the theological part of the sequence, and here's St. Thomas, the Church's greatest theologian, its greatest catechist, its greatest apologist, answers the questions, if both host and chalice, smallest particle, contain the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, then why does the priest consecrate the bread and the wine separately? And why does the priest then break the host after the consecration? Well, the separate consecrations represent how Jesus' body and blood were separated when he shed all his precious blood on the Holy Cross. And the breaking of the host before communion is done in remembrance of Jesus breaking the host at the Last Supper. He broke the bread to give communion to the apostles. Also, when the priest breaks the host, he places a little particle into the chalice. Why? Because just as the separate consecration of the bread and wine signifies our Lord's death, the reunion of that particle of the host in the chalice represents his resurrection. St. Thomas's point is that despite the symbolism of the second separate consecrations and the breaking of the consecrated host, Jesus continues to be present, whole and entire, in every particle of host and chalice. Now, this is quite the profound theological dissertation contained within an absolutely beautiful hymn. You know, I, I wish the people at Oregon Catholic Press, you know, who make the music issue, I wish they would take some notes, because it is entirely possible to compose a beautiful hymn that's also theologically accurate, but I digress. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to say that I suspect most Catholics assisting at the ordinary form of the Mass did not hear the part of the sequence that we just rehearsed over these last couple of segments. Because after Vatican II, the first two-thirds or maybe three-quarters of the Lauda Zion, with all of that rich theological content, was made optional for the new Mass. And so the shorter form of the sequence only begins with the next stanza. Lo, the angel's food is given to the pilgrim who has striven. See the children's bread from heaven, which on dogs may not be spent. Now he's, this part of the... Uh, of the sequence talks about um, actually receiving communion and the benefits we derive. And, and this uh, stands as a, a reference to Christ's words that 
Uh, first off, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And his words to the Canaanite woman who asked him to heal her daughter when he said, let the children first be filled and you don't give the children's food to the dogs. You know, here St. Thomas is saying that Holy Communion is only for those who are united in faith as members of the body of Christ in the Catholic Church. And further, of those, only for those who have striven, those who are in a state of grace, who are well disposed to receive our Lord. And in the next verse, he mentions how the, the Blessed Sacrament fulfills the Old Testament types of our Lord's bloody sacrifice of the cross and the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Truth, the ancient types fulfilling, Isaac bound, a victim willing, Paschal lamb, its life blood spilling, manna to the Father sent. So the sacrifice of Isaac, the Passover, and, and the, the manna in the desert, the, the miraculous bread from heaven given to the chosen people during the Exodus, all of these are fulfilled in the Holy Eucharist. And now this amazing prayer addresses Christ directly. Very bread, good shepherd, tend us. Jesus, of your love befriend us. You refresh us. You defend us. Your eternal goodness send us in the land of life to see. So now St. Thomas calls on Jesus for all his many blessings and, and, and visible signal graces that, that we so need in this life, invoking him as the true bread from heaven, our good shepherd and our best friend. And you know, if you ever doubt that Jesus is your best friend, recall his own words in the scriptures. I no longer call you servants, but friends. And no one has greater love than this than to give up his life for his friends, which he did for you and for me. And finally, the angelic doctor begs God, who is almighty and all-knowing, to grant us the grace to join with the saints in the heavenly banquet by receiving him in communion in this life and joining him at the eternal banquet in the next with these words. You who all things can and know, who on earth such food bestow, Grant us with your saints, though lowest, where the heavenly feast you show, fellow heirs and guests to be. Amen. Alleluia. And I hope I see you there. <laughs> and with that beautiful conclusion to that amazing sequence, I want to introduce today's Catholic Kryptonite segment. Now, as I said before, Catholic Kryptonite's a term that we coined to describe objections to the Catholic faith that our separated brethren typically don't think even admit of an answer. And, and too many Catholics, I'm afraid, have confirmed them in that conclusion. However, the Catholic Church has an answer. Now, in this case, virtually all evangelical and fundamentalist Christians deny the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, as do the majority of mainline Protestant communities, communities um, even those that have some form of communion service. Now, the doctrine of the real presence, it's right up there with Sola Scripture and faith alone and the papacy and the Marian doctrines as the major stumbling blocks for our separated brethren. And they ask, why do you Catholics believe that your Holy Communion is the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ? Isn't it more reasonable to believe that Christ is present symbolically or spiritually in the bread and wine? Right? That the Eucharist is only a symbol seems self-evident to them. Of course it's a symbol. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Might sound like a familiar question, when I would answer the same way he rose from the dead, because he's all-powerful and nothing shall be impossible for God. Now, I recall when I was working at St. Joseph Communic 
patients, I took a call from a Baptist fellow. He was just livid over a presentation uh, that Scott Hahn did on EWTN on the Eucharist. This guy, his, his voice was shaking as he said to me, that wafer is not Jesus. And I explained that Catholics believe that the Holy Eucharist is the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, because that's what Christ said it is. You know, his words, very clear, this is my body, this is my blood. That's, that's present in all of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as uh, the letters of St. Paul, to the first, first letter to the Corinthians. See, what many Christians don't understand is that the Last Supper was the first Mass, and the fulfillment of what Jesus promised in John chapter 6, when he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. And although Jesus often spoke in parables and used metaphors and similes and other symbolic language, it's clear that in this case he was speaking literally and that the people took him literally. This is a hard saying. Who can accept this? Literally, who can listen to this? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? But Jesus confirmed that they understood him correctly when he said, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And I pointed out that just like modern Catholics, the apostles also believed that the Holy Eucharist is the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That's the epistle for the, for the Corpus Christi Mass in the ordinary form. And the word translated participation in Latin is communicatio, literally communion, which, by the way, is why when we receive the Eucharist, we call it Holy Communion, because of this verse of Scripture. Now, there's more, and we're going to talk about it when we come back. In the meantime, stay put, and we will return shortly with more No-Nonsense Catholic. Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need covenant eyes to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code VMPR to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com Code VMPR Live Porn Free Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith.
This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Oh, and well. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Talking about defending the uh, doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and a conversation I had years ago with one of our separated brethren over the telephone who was very upset with the idea that we believe that Christ is really present in the Holy Eucharist. And, of course, I took him to John chapter 6, how people took him literally, and then um, to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, where he says the cup of blessing which we bless Bless, is it not a participation or a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then further, I, I pointed out that in the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians 11, and, and by the way, this now is the epistle uh, that was used for the Corpus Christi Mass in the extraordinary form, the one that was compiled by St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Paul's telling us that we have to examine our conscience before we receive communion. He says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, obviously, you you can't be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, I told him, if the Eucharist is only a symbol. Well, he was not moved. So I asked him, I said, well, what do you think Jesus meant when he said, I'm the living bread come down from heaven. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. And he said, he meant you have to accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. And I said, but but that's not what he said. That's not what the Bible says. And he replied, well, maybe not, but that's what it means. Uh, So we were at an impasse. And uh, I pointed out, you know, we both believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. We just have a different interpretation of this one inspired and inerrant passage, and he agreed. So then I asked him if he thought that St. John the Evangelist knew what Jesus meant, and he agreed, of course he did. So I said, wouldn't it be nice if we could ask St. John what Jesus really meant? And then he got a little hesitant. I think he was sensitive a trap, but, you know, presumably confident that I was not going to produce St. John, he agreed to this also. And that's when I pointed out that there was a fellow named uh, Polycarp, who was a disciple of St. John, and that he believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. 
and that St. Polycarp had a disciple named Ignatius of Antioch, who also met St. John, and that he too believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. In fact, I said, Catholics believe that they receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ in Holy Communion because that's what all Christians believed until the advent of Protestantism in the 16th century. And he got quiet and he said, I have to think about this. Because although, I mean, it it's, seems obvious to you and me, but it was something he'd never even considered. Now, I don't know what happened to that fellow because we never spoke again. But I'm glad I had the opportunity to plant the seed because that is what we are called upon to do as lay Catholics, to always be ready to give an explanation for the hope that is in you, but to do it with gentleness and respect. And that's no nonsense. Now, I've often pointed out the church's insistence from the Didache all the way to Vatican II that the Catholics need to know their faith. If the meaning and purpose of life is to know, love, and serve God in this life and be happy with him forever in the next, then the first and most necessary thing is to know him. You know, Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor, was um, responsible for, for a, a kind of a little renaissance, the Carolingian renaissance, they call it, because he was a champion of education and a champion of catechesis, because he wanted people to live virtuous lives. You know, and he said, right action is better than knowledge, but in order to do what is right, we must first know what is right. And that's, that's the big issue, I think, in the church today, as the, as the prophet said, my people perish for lack of knowledge. So today we're going to look at one of the treasures of our tradition, and that is the precepts of the church, also known as the laws of the church or the commandments of the church. And I'll tell you, the precepts have been modified um, slightly many times over the centuries, but actually that's kind of the point. The reason that there is a magisterium of the church is to apply the deposit of faith to the circumstances of the day, because every man is a modern man in his own time. And, and that is why um, the church has the right to make laws. That Jesus Christ, you know, said to St. Peter and the apostles, who were the first bishops of the church, whatever you declare bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you declare loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Simon Peter, he was made the keeper of the keys, the one who has the power to bind and loose, to, to open and close, to allow or to forbid. And this extraordinary power that was given to Peter became clearer through the development of the you know, early church and the Christian community up to our day. We're talking about the primacy of Peter, which means uh, not just that he's you know, the first among the apostles, but that he has supreme authority, that, that his primacy is also a supremacy in teaching, in governing, in sanctifying the people of God. And this right given by Christ to the church to make laws is used by the bishops, uh, who are the successors of the apostles, and especially by the pope, as successor of the chief of the apostles, you know, by which they have the right to make laws for the church and the pope to make laws for the entire church. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But he gave the, uh, the, the church the right to make laws. And so the precepts of the church are really, it expresses certain duties that Catholic Christians are uh, you know, expected to fulfill today. And, and they 
what they do is they expand on it. They, they explain further the law of God. And, and that's the reason that we have to obey the precepts of the church. They have the authority of Jesus behind them. He's the one who said to the apostles, he who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Now, the I, <clears throat> recent list of the duties expected of Christians today uh, was made by the U.S. bishops back in the 1980s, I think around 1987 or so. And, and we're going to have that in mind as we go forward. Now, the, the first precept of the church, and this is something that uh, ties into what we were talking today, is the obligation to attend Sunday Mass. First precept of the church is that, you know, Catholics must um, attend Mass on all the Sundays and Holy Days of obligation. And you should never miss Mass through your own fault. And this, again, this is uh, in relation to the, to the commandment that says, keep holy the, the Lord's Day, right? <clears throat> so the bishops, you know, give a rather wordier version of it, to keep Holy Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection, to worship God by taking part in Mass every Sunday and Holy Day of Obligation, and to avoid um, work that isn't necessary, right? This is an obligation that begins for every Catholic at the age of seven. And it was given to us, like I said, in the third commandment of God, remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. And to break a law of the church is a serious sin. It's like breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Catholics who miss Mass on a Sunday or a Holy Day of Obligation through their own fault, okay, without some serious reason, uh, or without being dispensed, as we all were in this extraordinary situation with the COVID-19, uh, to, to miss Mass through your own fault on a Sunday or Holy Day of Obligation is a serious, a mortal sin. And so, you know, a mortal sin, it takes away sanctifying grace. It takes the supernatural life from the soul. You know, it, it makes you an enemy of God instead of his friend and takes away the reward that you deserve for your good actions, right? The right to eternal happiness, the right to heaven. You know, mortal sin, that's, that's a big, big deal. And that's why, and you know, Catholic Christians need to understand this because people who, who cavalierly miss Mass, who go to Mass regularly, meaning they go once or twice a month, but when they do go receive Holy Communion without being absolved of the sin of missing Mass under their own fault, they're making a sacrilegious communion. And people need to understand this because it's, because it's serious. You know, um, and it was... It was the practice of the early church that moved the Sabbath from the last day of the week to the first day of the week, from Saturday to Sunday. <clears throat> Paul and the Christians of, of Troas assemble on the first day of the week, it says, to break the bread in, in the book of Acts, chapter 20. St. John calls it the Lord's Day, which is still the title that uh, the church uses for Sunday. And the reason that Sunday replaced the Sabbath of Saturday was to remind us about the resurrection of Christ. He rose from the dead on the first day of the week, the early Christians call it the eighth day, right? Because he says, because he makes all things new, because we are a new creation in Christ and so forth. You know, and, and even in the first century, we already have a record of assisting at Mass in the Didache, in the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And it is expressed as a command. We already have in the various earliest days of the Church that it is, that is an obligation to receive or to, to assist at Mass on Sundays and Holy Days. And in our own time, you know, in the 20th century, we got uh, Vatican II, <clears throat> which said, on this day, Christians must gather together to hear the word of God, to partake of the Eucharist, and in this way, to call to mind the passion, resurrection, 
and glory of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. Sunday is the first of all feast days to be urged upon the faithful so that it may also become a day of gladness and rest from work. Okay, so we have the holy sacrifice of the Mass. You see how this ties into what we were talking about. And it also ties into the second precept of the Church, which is to receive Holy Communion, minimally once in the year, and that at the Easter time, and to also go to confession at least once a year. Now, the, the U.S. bishops modified it to, to say the second precept of the Church is to receive Holy Communion frequently and the sacrament of penance regularly, right, because the two are connected. You know, it's a precept that um, requires us to lead a sacramental life, that we should receive communion as often as we can, receive it well, right? And that at the very least, we should do that once a year, that between the first Sunday of Lent and Trinity Sunday. And that to lead a sacramental life isn't just about receiving communion, but that we should celebrate the sacrament of penance, you know, minimally once a year. Although, I mean, and every uh, post-Vatican II exhortation says, of course, annual confession is really only obligatory if you have a serious sin. But I'll tell you, to lead a sacramental life, you should go to confession, as they say, regularly. St. John Paul II recommended once a month. All right? The, the, that, that law of yearly confession says that, you know, anybody who is obliged to confess a mortal sin mustn't let more than a year go by. But of course, we understand that should you have the misfortune to commit a mortal sin, you should make an act of perfect confession immediately and then go to confession at your earliest convenience, your first opportunity. And that's the law of the church. And you know what? It is a, a way to help us to get to heaven. I want to say thank you for being with us today on No Nonsense Catholic. We'll be back next week, same time, same station, as they say. Uh, very much looking forward to that. Uh, don't forget, this Saturday is the virtual pilgrimage to the Holy Land with Steve Ray. You can um, go to vmpr.org or call our office at 877-526-2151 to register for that. In the meantime, until next time, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were open to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.